We're off to the races. And we know. You say when. It's his favorite fish and chips. Well, that's a given. There's none. I've traveled the world 17 different times, and Ivers Fish and Chips, hands down, the greatest fish and chips on planet Earth. The argument has been settled. Okay. Yeah, I didn't Say know there no was more. an argument. Yes. That's okay. right. Yes. And that tartar sauce is mad. I don't know. They put cocaine in the tartar sauce or something. I don't know. It's, you can't it's, say that on the radio. I, I don't know. It's it's addictive. There's some secret ingredient in that thing <laughs> that just takes that thing to another level. I'm sure it's not cocaine, so let's just set the record yeah. straight. But yeah. there's something, you know, addictive in that stuff. Eat it by the spoonfuls. Do you want to get onto the intro? just excited to have Bob here. <laughs> I, I've been telling, you know, everybody, I said, well, who's Bob Donegan? I said, well, he's, I'm, I called you Mr. Seattle. Your standards are too low, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get out more. Because I had started out on my description with the ubiquitous, because they had you described it as that. And when you stop to think about and read the things that you were doing, that's pretty good title and description for you. You're everywhere. We'd like to thank you to another edition of our Worth Knowing More podcast here at Hoheimer Wealth Management. We're very excited to have with us Bob Donegan, the CEO of the Ivers Restaurant Corporation. Is there anything else I should add to that? Well, we don't use the CEO title. So there are four of us at Ivers, and we are the co-decision makers. Co-decision makers. And interestingly, our ownerships vary significantly but unless all four of us agree on major decisions, we don't proceed. Wow. So titles don't mean anything to us. Okay. I was hauling trash this morning. <laughs> so titles don't mean much. But the CEO title go. is not a title that we use. The official title is president. President. There we go. And that's O hyphen F-I-S-H hyphen Allie. Officially. Nice. <laughs> boom, boom. It's gonna- going to be good. It's just, going to be good. Just as Ivor is our flounder. Yes. Now, see, now we're, now we're, we're, we're talking the magic right here. Yeah. Because Ivor is an absolute character beyond characters, one of Seattle's greatest treasures. When we do our little summary of who Ivor's is, the number 13th rule is we seek to create fun. And when we hire people, if they're morose or pessimistic, they're out the door because we want to be around fun people. Oh, look at that. You could get a job uh, there, a, Robbie. Just when we thought we couldn't love Bob anymore, he goes <laughs> and gives us that golden nugget. Should I yeah. introduce awesome. myself or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, most people know him because he's world famous in itself, but it's nice to have here part of the discussion Mark Dieterer, our director of philanthropic services here at the firm. You guys have known each other how many years? A decade? At least. Yeah. I was going to say 15, but yeah. yeah. And what was it that first brought you two together? We spent a night together in the King County Jail. And got I wasn't going to say anything, Bob, but... Nice. Good. All right. Well, you know, that works too, you know. I'm I think, all for the adventure. I think it was equivalent to that. Um, Mark was at, was at Wells. Wells Fargo uh-huh. when we were looking at banks, and Mark was one of the pretty boys they brought in to he is pretty, impress he? us with. We call him Yummy-licious around here. That's the technical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's pretty Yummy-licious. Yeah. Yeah, so that's good. Well, Bob, go ahead and give us a little bio. Tell uh, the uh, all the listeners for the first time who you are, what you're doing, and what you're involved in, and some backstory, and some of the good stuff. So Lisa and I moved to Seattle in 1984 so she could teach at the University of Washington. 
and I had worked in a big corporate job in Connecticut in American Can's world headquarters. And I was frustrated with the way Fortune 100 companies made decisions based not on strategic factors or financial factors, but rather based on political factors. So for the next 10 years when we moved out here, I worked with 70, 40 different startup companies on really practical stuff. How do you file articles of incorporation? How do you set up an accounting system? How do you file a patent? How do you set up a sales network? And it was day-to-day -day active, and I helped those 40 companies raise about 70 million bucks to get started. And in 1992, Zev and Gordon and Jerry, the guys who started Starbucks, had bought Pete's Coffee in Berkeley in 1987 and sold Starbucks to Howard Schultz and the existing management team in 1987 with a commitment that neither Pete's would open in Washington and Starbucks wouldn't open in California for five years. And in 1992, when that non-compete expired, Zevin, Gordon, and Jerry looked around the country and saw that there were a limited number of specialty coffee companies. The Coffee Connection in Boston, Diedrich's Coffee in Southern California, Pete's in the Bay Area, and Starbucks here. And Starbucks had just opened in Vancouver and in Chicago. And Zevin, Gordon, and Jerry wanted to start another coffee company. And so they came to me and asked for help. And they opened another coffee company in Bethesda, Maryland, Washington, D.C., that I helped them roll out. And after we merged Quartermain Coffee in D.C. into Pete's in Berkeley, I became the CFO of the combined organization and helped Pete's get ready to go public. And when that was completed, we were looking for a way to get back to Seattle to finish Lisa's sabbatical from the university. It lasted four years rather than one year. And the ad agency we used at Pete's was the initial ad agency at Starbucks, Terry Heckler. And Terry was the ad agency for Ivers, and he introduced me to the Ivers guys. So in February 1997, I came in to help them do a new financing plan. And then on 9-11, we were looking at buying a family-owned seafood restaurant company on a pier in Monterey. And that was the day of the crash into the World the attack, Trade Center. Yeah, exactly. Our partner, Scott, was scheduled to fly down to Monterey that morning and meet the family. And, of course, he couldn't travel because the air traffic system was shut down. So he came back to our offices on Pier 54 where the TVs were in the bar. And having worked on the pier for 31 years, at age 51, he had a heart attack and died. Wow. And his daughter was a server in the restaurant. His son was our technology manager, and they saw their father die on the floor of the restaurant. Now, Fire Station 5, the paramedics, are right next door to our pier. They were on him within 90 seconds, and they couldn't save Scott. And that was the day that Jim and Frank and Mark and Jimmy asked me if I would take over as the managing partner on a temporary basis. So that was now, what, 25 years ago? It's still temporary. <laughs> but as nice. we've talked about, titles don't mean anything. What matters is getting the work done. Absolutely. Yeah. The company today, Ivers, has about 60 locations. We have 19 seafood bars. That's the neighborhood places that sell fish and chips and chowder and salads. The three full-service restaurants, 
the four freestanding kid valleys, our secret chowder plant up in the woods in Mukilteo. Don't tell anybody, Rob. Is that a thing? I didn't know. That's just one I thought I knew everything. Nice. We have a bunch of elves up there, 100 today, <laughs> who will be producing chowder 24 hours a day, and then a bunch of locations in Cheney Stadium, Husky Stadium, Lumen Field, and T-Mobile. So it's a busy little empire with a lot of people working and serving fish and chips and hamburgers. The last time we spoke, was there other stadium activity that you had stuff going on into also test areas, or was it just Washington State that we, stadiums? We get asked all the time to come to San Francisco Maybe or that's Denver what it was. or Phoenix, and it's expensive to operate in stadiums, and we think of it as marketing. So if we're in Phoenix and marketing our products, we don't have any stores down there. So we've not expanded gotcha. in stadiums beyond regional Puget Sound. Yeah. Well, what other restaurants, in case everybody wants to know, and they don't, what other restaurants are under the umbrella that you guys own? So Ivor's Acres of Clams on Pier 54, downtown Seattle. Ivor's Salmon House on Lake Union, near the University of Washington. Ivor's Muckleteo Landing, up next to the old ferry dock in Muckleteo. Then our seafood bars, Kid Valley. And then in stadiums, Whenever a team doesn't sell a sponsorship in a food category, like when the Mariners didn't sell a Mexican food sponsorship, they ask us to create something. So if you ever visited Bubba's Burritos out in the right field, first level, that's an Ivers brand that was created just, just for the purpose of wow. supporting our partners who no are the Mariners. Idea. Wow, that's great. Well, since we're on stadium, I know that there is a story, and you're awfully proud of those garlic fries. Is there anything you want to touch base on with the garlic fries? Well, I'm sad I didn't bring any for you today. Oh, see, I Robbie. told you, Robbie. <laughs> um, but the because we don't have a stadium event happening, and all that garlic is fresh, we don't have any fresh garlic to bring along. But it is the most commonly eaten food in a stadium in Seattle. One of every 11 fans at the Seahawks-Giants game on Sunday had garlic fries. And they come out of two booths at Lumen Field. That's 7,000 orders out of two booths. A lot of stinky breath. And we think of them as a cancer. So in a Mariners game, in one inning, someone will go and get an order. And in the next inning, three people sitting around them will get them. And in the next <laughs> inning, 20 people sitting around them and by the end of the game, that whole section will be filled with garlic fry. Well, the smell is undeniable, though Indeed. I can surely understand how it gets contagious and addictive. So Walt, who manages our stadiums, had a bet with the woman who managed the Kid Valley location in the left field corner. He said to Nancy, if you can get the garlic and hamburger smoke to second base, I'll give you $1,000. And Howard Lincoln, then the managing partner, CEO of the Mariners, hated the garlic fries, even though it was the best-selling item in the stadium. So before the playoff games in 2001, he put a $70,000 smoke eater system on top of the Kid Valley location to keep that smoke from making it into the middle oh of the field. Oh, my. But you remember when there were rally fries. Yeah. Those were garlic fries. There we go. Yeah, well, I think the change in the title has been nothing but a success, that's yeah. for sure. Before a Seahawk game, before a Sounder game, before a Mariners homestand, Walt will order garlic from Gilroy, garlic capital oh, of California. Oh, yeah. And the truck will come up with 20 or 35-gallon pails 
of fresh garlic for the homestand or for the game or for the weekend. And when that garlic gets unloaded and you pop those things over, oh, baby, that is heaven. <laughs> That's as good as being in Italy. That's with, going back behind the garlic. curtain on that one right there. I love it. Now, when you work the garlic fry booth, as I do all the time, you have to bring a second set of clothes with you to the game. And when you get back to your car, and you never want to ride the bus after working the garlic fry stand, when you get back to your car, you take off all your clothes and your shoes, you put it in a black plastic garbage bag, and when you get home, you immediately put that in the washing machine with trisodium phosphate. You never want to step on your floor mats after you've worked in the garlic fry booth because that smell will be in your car for the next year. Wow, that's crazy. You got to tell us what's the best thing about working with a company that you do? What's the toughest part and what's the best part? So let's start with the best part. When I have a bad day, all I have to do is walk out to the restaurant and see a server taking food out to a table and explaining it to someone from Omaha that this is Bristol Bay Sockeye and this is how it's different from King's. And you see those people smile. We're in the customer service business. And when people have a good experience... And they're typically on vacation when they come down to the pier and they're looking for a good time. And when they get it, that's as rewarding as it gets. Nice. Mm -hmm. The toughest recent day I can think of was September 27th, 2020. The governor had declared that week that there could be no indoor dining in restaurants because of corona. And we knew with so few people coming to work in downtown Seattle, 330,000 people work downtown in Seattle. At the worst of corona... 9.6% of us were coming to work every day. That's 300,000 lunch occasions that disappeared. And we knew that Acres of Clams and the Salmon House could not survive the winter by staying open. So we had to put our staff, the cooks, the managers, the sous chefs, the bartenders, the servers, the bussers, into hibernation. So we met with them at each of the restaurants in the banquet room and told them we were going to lay them off. That was a terrible, terrible day. Yeah. Now, having said that, we said to them, using really simple math, if you were making $2,000 a week and unemployment's going to give you 1000 we will give you an additional $500 a week as a loan. That way you don't have to declare it as income against unemployment. And if you come back to work for us when we reopen, we'll forgive those loans. And we put everybody that we laid off, including those who were not on the health plan, into our health plan because nobody should have been without health insurance during corona. And guess what? May 17th, when we reopened the Salmon House, June when we reopened Acres, 47 of 52 people at the Salmon House came back to work for us. Wow. Because they were treated well. Yeah. Sure. And they're longtime employees. That was a rewarding day. But September 27th, that was a bad day, Robbie. Yeah, that's a great example, no doubt about it. Hope we never have to go through that again. How's things going now? I mean, we're trying to get back to normal here in the city. Are things going well? So let's start with the waterfront. There are 45 businesses on the waterfront. And since 2011, we've tracked the number of people who've purchased something from one of those 45 businesses. In 2019, we had 6,340,000 people buy something from one of the waterfront businesses. And we know that if someone rides the wheel and then goes next door to Elliott's, we don't count them twice. Our market research tells us how much overlap there is. At the worst of corona in 2020, 1.3 million people 
down from 6.3 million people, bought something on the waterfront. Now, that grew to 3.4 million people last year. And I think when we do the numbers for 2022, we'll be up to 5 million unique visits. Wow. Fantastic. So the waterfront has come back. It's still the worst-performing stores of anybody who has multiple locations in town because as of last week, only 40% of the downtown workers are still coming to work. That's 160,000 yeah, people sure, exactly. who are not coming to work. The Kid Valley and the seafood bars, they're up about 20% over the same periods in 2019. Our chowder business that we sell to Costco and Safeway and Albertsons and QFC, that business is up, is almost doubled in the last three years. Don't forget that jarred uh, tartar, tartar sauce cocktail. that we get to pick up at our local grocery store. Indeed. So do you have jars at home? Yes, absolutely. Do you get it from a grocery store? Or do you get it from one of our stores? No, nope, get it uh, from the grocery store. But uh, you don't, You wouldn't think that I would need to buy a jar because with my order that comes once a week, if I get a five-piece, there are six tartars that go with a five-piece. So I'm getting my fair share of tartars. Only six tartars? Yeah, I don't know what the record is for somebody to come in You know, with the amount of tartar they get with like a five-piece or what we call in the old days a double. When we had the store at SeaTac, I would work that store on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, one of the busiest travel days of the year. And I was down there, oh, 10 years ago at about quarter to six before we opened at six, and there was someone banging on the gate wanting to get food. And we're a customer service business, so we asked him, what do you want? He said, I want six orders of clams and chips. What? So when we finished cooking it, I took it out to the seating area to him and said, six orders? What's the story? You're traveling alone. He said, I'm going to Russia for six months, and I want to remember how good these things taste. So he may have been the record for the number of tartars. Nice. I want to talk about the waterfront and give us an update on what's going on with all that. In 2007, when the city, the county, and the state released the environmental impact statement to replace the viaduct, there were two preferred alternatives— And both of the preferred alternatives would close Alaska Way surface street, that's the main street on the waterfront, for 116 or 117 months. Oh, my. So do the math. That's 10 years. That's crazy. And when I called Chuck Kirshner and met with him, the city's mitigation manager, and said, hey, Chuck, there's 2,500 family wage jobs in these piers down here. What do we do for 10 years? He looked at me and said, you want to stay open? And that's when I knew if we didn't get involved, that we were all going to lose our businesses and our employees and our customers. So the viaduct solution, the tunnel plus transit solution, was actually conceived on Pier 54. Wow. And then the group that supported it, the original 24 stakeholders that the governor, the mayor, the county executive promoted, on December 8th, 2008, rejected the two alternatives that the state proposed to replace the viaduct, said, no, no, we want the tunnel plus transit solution. Over Christmas of 2008, the governor, Gregoire, called more than 70 people on the committee, experts in the community, and said, are you really serious about this? We could not have the park that's being built now if an elevated or a surface street solution was built because the viaduct was carrying 110,000 vehicles a day Roughly 71,000 of them entered north of the Battery Street Tunnel and exited south of Spokane Street or the reverse. They were through traffic. But that still means there were 30,000 vehicles a day coming into downtown Seattle. Alaska Way Surface Street before the tunnel 
was carrying 8,000 vehicles a day in the winter, 13,000 vehicles a day in the summer. And the park couldn't exist with that kind of traffic. Yeah. So when we, January 9th, 2009, when the governor, the county exec, the mayor, and Te Yoshitani from the port agreed to the deal, that's what unleashed the park. We thought that was good news. Well, that was 14 years ago. We've had 14 years of construction on the waterfront. Now, 40 of the 45 businesses have survived it so far. And the schedule calls for the new aquarium at the base of the Pike Place steps to open in the summer of 2024 and for the park to open in the beginning of 2025. Are we going to hit those dates? Quietly, the project team reports that it's on schedule. Um, and everything that Jessica Murphy, the project manager on the seawall and the project manager now in the park, she's my favorite of the 13,000 city employees because she's so responsive and so good. I trust her that she will get things done in time. Nice. I walked the waterfront early this morning, and about 7 o'clock, the barge arrived at Pier 58. That's between the Great Wheel and the aquarium, mm -hmm. and began driving the piles for the new pier that's going to be constructed there, which is a kid's play field and an alternate music area, Pier 62 being the primary one, and this one being <clears throat> the secondary one. So they're unscheduled. When the thing's completed, what are you most excited about? We didn't know, we, the committee that designed the park, didn't know how to think about financing for the park. There's expenses and there's revenues. And there's an expert in Brooklyn, Candace Damon, and her firm HRNA, that's done financing for about 50 parks through North America. So Candace came out to town a decade ago and helped us think about what the new waterfront's going to look like. She said when this park opens, the number of visitors to the waterfront is going to triple. So we'll go from the 6.5 million we saw in 2019 to 18 to 20 million wow. in wow, that's 2025. Crazy. By comparison, the Pike Place market in 2019 had between 12 and 15 million visitors. And you know how busy the Pike Place market oh, is. Yeah. So that's the big excitement. We're already seeing it. The Pier 62, the first part of the project that's been completed, has had 180,000 people visit that pier for an event or a concert or a wedding or a party this summer. And most of the waterfront's not done yet. So that's, yeah, that's the great. most exciting thing. Yeah, no, that's good. On the music venue, is it specifically something that was built for the concerts or is it just the open space that they set up on and do their thing? When we designed the space and the alternate space for music at Pier 58, we suggested that the infrastructure be put in place for music and power and water and everything. And in the process of designing the park, all of those improvements got value engineered out. So they're blank spaces, but you know, having produced events, it's easy to bring that stuff in. Yeah. But it's relatively expensive compared to just plugging and playing. Gotcha. But remember when concerts at the pier used to happen oh, on Pier yeah. 62? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mark would bring his boat or his sailboard and sit out in the water and listen for free. There we go. People would throw food at him off the pier. <laughs> he's a, and he's a water rat. There's no doubt about that. So uh, let me jump in on this. Bob, you're talking about uh, what, what happened during COVID. But when the seawall was getting done, you had to close for several months, didn't you? Along with a, a bunch of other businesses. And I'm curious about the closure and how your employees handle it. So the civil engineers who work for the city because that was a city responsibility, 
are risk-averse. They never want to make a mistake that will come back and embarrass them or the electeds. And we knew that the program that the city had developed to rebuild the seawall was not very thoughtful. So we hired independent civil engineers and said, instead of taking years to do this and keep us open by providing bridges and lights and Americans with disability access, why don't you close us and we can cut the construction time significantly down? So the deal we negotiated with the city was we believe that the city could save $30 million of the $255 million cost of replacing the seawall by closing us down. And we said to them, if you share half of those savings with us so we can pay critical employees, case of Kevin Clark at Argosy, that's his captains and boat people. They're all Coast Guard certified. You know, they need um, transportation security certification. He can't just hire boat captains off the street chefs, long-term employees, people like that. If you share that with us so we can pay them, we can pay our insurance and taxes and stuff like that, we think you can save a whole lot of money. And the city agreed. So for 271 days in 2015 and 2016, from September through July, the waterfront businesses closed. So during that time, we decided, because we're closed, this is the perfect time to remodel Pier 54. And the deal we had with the city was we will stage all the demolition and construction from the water rather than staging across Alaska Way, which at that time was a 60-foot wide, 20-foot deep hole while they replaced the seawall. So we spent a million dollars on barges to take old stuff off the pier and bring new stuff onto the pier. And we talked daily with the seawall team, with the project managers, with the construction people, to make sure we were not getting in their way. And the result was that we had a brand new pier, Pier 54, Acres of Clams, new restaurants, completed July 1st, 2016, when it reopened. And it was during that time that Hal and Kyle at Pier 57 put in the Wings Over Washington exhibit. Yeah. Other people who were closed remodeled during that time as well. And most importantly, we were able to keep most of our employees because we either transferred them to other stores or if they couldn't transfer to other stores but were vital, they got paid their base wages during that time. And in the end, against the $15 million that we agreed to share with the city, the city paid $12.5 million out. So not only did it save from $30 million to $15 million, it saved another $2.5 million. So it was a good deal for both the city and the waterfront businesses. If you haven't been, Robbie has been to the new Acres of Clamps. It's been remodeled. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it is just a fantastic place. Well, a little bit on a serious note then, how are you guys with all the new construction and the plans going forward, how are you guys dealing with the homeless issue that we've got? So, Robbie, we don't have as big a homeless or security or safety issue on the waterfront that the rest of the city has. And the reason for that is there's 110 different members of the Waterfront Association, the businesses, residents, uh, suppliers to the waterfront, and one or many of us walk the waterfront every day. And when we see someone who's struggling, camped in a tent, using drugs, behaving inappropriately, not dressed on a cold day like today with the rain and the wind, we snap a picture of them and we send that to a dozen people the public defender, Reach Northwest, which is the social service firm, Kent Lou, the waterfront cop, 
the Department of Transportation, Seattle Parks, and we say, at the base of the Pike Steps, there's a guy who's struggling. And within an hour, the police reach Northwest, SDOT, Parks, the construction crew, will be on them and get them into services. And the reason this system works is because if they don't, we're going to call the mayor and the city council and the head of the Department of Transportation and Parks and whine and complain. We've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. And they're tired of hearing the whining, so we actually get services That's down crazy. There. Is there lessons to be learned for everybody else left in the city that's struggling with the same issues? Interestingly, when Dow Constantine was walking 3rd Avenue a couple years ago, because there's so much Metro bus service on 3rd Avenue, he asked everybody, what's a model for what we should be doing here? And everybody said, call the waterfront, because we do it now. 3rd Avenue is different because the business owners tend not to be there. Those are all franchise operation or leased operations. Um, and it's different when you have someone who owns a business or at the aquarium who's worked there for 20 years. Everybody down there has an ownership interest in what's going on on the waterfront. Plus, we have a whole bunch of residents in the waterfront place condos, in the watermark tower, in the waterfront landing condos. And if you, you're seeing that problem in your neighborhood, you have a different response to it than if you're just walking through. That was our serious point. Now it's time. You were going to ask the hoax question, Robbie. Listen, I've been waiting a long time to hear your version of it. And you're smiling just a wee bit over there. So I'm hoping that it's colorful and good. So anyway, take so it away. About this time of the year in 2008, we were getting together to plan our adventures for 2009. And remember what was happening economically in 2008? was not good. Terrible not good. time. So one of our goals at Ivers is always to create fun. And we said, whatever we do, we want people to see it and smile. So the youngest person on the team from Heckler Associates, our ad agency, said he was digging around our attic at Pier 54, and he discovered some maps and he put them out on the table in front of us. And he said, in the 1950s, Ivor was a member of the Ferry Planning Commission that looked at putting a bridge from Coleman Dock to Bainbridge. And when they did the analysis, they found out it was more efficient to move people in submarines than to move them on boats on the top of the water. So Ivor looked at the routes, and he bought seven locations to put underwater billboards in. And Doug showed us the map that he had discovered with red X's indicating where Ivor had bought the locations. There was a copy of a signed lease with the Department of Natural Resources. There were drawings, architectural drawings, showing how they'd be built. And so we didn't know if this was real. We hired a dive team from West Seattle, and they dove three of the locations, and about 100 yards off Duwamish Head in Alki, on August 20th, 2009, they discovered one of the billboards. And we were out there with Global Diving and Salvage to recover the billboard. That night, Dean Rutz, whom you may know is the Seattle Times primary sports photographer, was having dinner with his wife in West Seattle. It's the end of August. The weather is gorgeous. The kids haven't gone back to school. So as they're driving off Alki, there's all these people 
clustered, pointing out into the water. And Dean gets out his telephoto lens and takes a picture of us retrieving a billboard from the water. You can see the Seattle skyline in the background. You can see it's a gorgeous night. You can see it says Ivers on the billboard. And about 15 minutes later, my cell phone started ringing. And we were busy. We were recovering this thing. We were taking photographs of it. And I didn't answer the phone until I got home. And it was Chris Gleason, the manager of our Acres of Clam store, who said, Phil Fuji, the photo editor of the Seattle Times, has been calling, and he's got to talk to you. And what's this about billboards in the water? Well, nobody knew about this because we didn't know if it was real. So I called Phil, and he said, Bob, I'm on deadline. What's going on? And I, we're not prepared to talk about this because the campaign is not supposed to break until September 10th. Phil said, Bob, I'm going to send you the picture. You tell me what's going on. So he sends this picture. The next morning, Saturday, it appears on page B2 of the local news in the Seattle Times with a caption that said, Ivers may have discovered something in Puget Sound. Well, it was such a big hit that so many people accessed the Seattle Times website that they crashed it. And everybody wanted to know. There were hundreds of comments. <laughs> Didn't know that. Is this real or is this fake? Well, the following week, Eric Lasitas, the feature writer for the Seattle Times, called and wanted to know more. Well, we're not prepared to talk about this until the campaign breaks in September. Eric says, what did you find? Well, we think we found a billboard. Well, how do you know it's real? Well, we didn't know if it was real. But we know that up until the mid-1970s, anything that was painted had lead in the paint. So we told him that we had sent the billboard to a lab to test to see if there was lead in the paint. What lab, Eric says? It wasn't sent to a lab. It was in a warehouse. <laughs> he says, was there any name of the artist on the billboard? Well, we knew who painted it. It was our ad agency. But if I give him the phone number of Heckler Associates, it's going to blow up that it's fake. So we give him the artist's name and phone number at home. And he calls him, and the artist describes, this is reminiscent of this guy's style in the 1950s, and you can see the flourishes. This, of course, is all made up whole. <laughs> was it a strategy? Did you guys get together? This was to get all, the story straight? This was all winged. <laughs> we hadn't anticipated this was going to be discovered. So three times it appears in the Seattle Times, in color, above the fold, this story. And it becomes a huge argument in the community. Is this real or is this another hoax? We had planted some Easter eggs in the campaign, one of which was the price on the chowder. You could get chowder was 75 cents a cup. And a very smart reader went to the menus collection at the University of Washington Suzalo Library and found out that in the 1950s, the date of the leases with the state, a cup of chowder cost a nickel. I was going to say 19 cents, <laughs> but... Wow. Eric asked, um, how deep was the water in which this thing was found? We hadn't thought about that. So I asked him, you mean at high tide or low tide? Because as you know, the tides can be 15 feet. He said, high tide. I said, well, it was about 60 feet down. Well, on the billboard, we had barnacles. 
Barnacles don't live 60 feet down. They live in the intertidal zone up at the top. Another mistake. <laughs> so it was filled. Well, ultimately, Nation's Restaurant News and Evening Magazine published the reveal that this was all fake and it was all a hoax. Many of the restaurant advertising periodicals called it the most effective advertising of the Genius. year. Genius. We purchased about 9 million impressions, advertising in the Seattle Times, billboards that we put around town, radio and TV spots. We got more than 50 million consumer impressions of this thing. And almost everybody who looked at it smiled, so it achieved its purpose, which was we created some fun. That's, That's fantastic. Wild, wild, wild. I know it's a good one. I can't, I've never heard anything else like it anywhere. So one of the billboards had Kids Eat Free... And it showed the logo of Jell-O in the 1950s. Do you remember what Jell-O's logo was in the 1950s? No, I've seen some of the vintage ad stuff. I, if I saw it, I would recognize it. So there were, I'll give you a hint. <clears throat> there were eight flavors of Jell-O when it came out. What has eight arms? There we go. Octopus. So it was an octopus holding different flavors of Jell-O. And we gave people, kids who came into the restaurants, a kid's meal for free, we wanted to give them a self-serve portion of Jell-O. Well, when we ordered the Jell-O, there wasn't 300,000 orders of Jell-O in Puget Sound. So we had trucks come up from Los Angeles, and we were tracking them on the radio to make sure they got here. By the time the campaign broke, it was great fun. It was a huge success. So good. That's great. So good. Since we're on some of the fun stuff, you got any comments on that world-famous Super Bowl commercial? Again, this is Terry Heckler. That was 2006. Somebody, Miller, did an ad which was five seconds long. And they were broadcasting that it was the world's shortest commercial. So we, Terry said, we can beat that. So there's a picture of a gull. He comes on the screen and he says, Ivers! And it lasts less than a second. Yep. And the issue was buying space. How do you buy less than a second of ad space on the broadcast Mm -hmm. regionally Mm -hmm. of the Super Bowl game? Well, we did. And again... I never saw the price. Is the price known, what you guys paid for the ad? We knew it at the time. I don't remember now. Yeah. It was thousands of dollars, but it was worth every penny because of all the coverage that we got. Oh, yeah. I watched it just uh, getting ready for the podcast. I watched it again yesterday. And, I mean, there's probably uh, thousands of people that don't even know about it because if you looked away for a second, you missed it. There's a lot of Seattleites that I don't think have any idea that there was a Ivor Super Bowl commercial. In the Acres of Clams lobby, while people are waiting for their tables in the summer, we have two giant TVs that play the vintage ads, and that one shows up. And if you look aside or if you sneeze, you miss the ad. (laughs) That's awesome. What's your vision for the next 10 years? What do you see happening in the industry, personally, with the waterfront? How long are you going to be doing this, you think? At the worst of, uh, starting in January 2020, there were 300,000 people who worked in hospitality in Washington State. In June of 2020, worst of corona, 189,000 of them had applied for unemployment. Two-thirds of the industry was not working. Last month, 13,000 of those 300,000 people are still collecting unemployment, or they may be different restaurant people. So it has come back. At the start of corona, we had 14,527 restaurants and hotels in Washington State. At the worst of corona, we were down 5,000. 
I haven't seen a number, but I'm going to guess we're back above 10,000. We're approaching the restaurant levels that we saw before. But the change is try to get a meal in downtown Seattle for lunch on a Monday or Tuesday. It's impossible. Nobody, nobody's open down yeah. here. One of our busiest days of the two of our busiest days of the week at Acres of Clams are Mondays and Tuesdays because we're one of the only places that's open. So I think you will see more and more of that, that people return to their normal hours and their lunches and dinners seven days a week. That's an improvement. I think you will see higher quality people working in restaurants. We've always paid at the top end of the scale, so yeah, we get indeed. we get good employees. But many restaurants did not. Well, if you're paying minimum wage now, you can't get anyone. Mm -hmm. So I'm I not going to get that guy who knows my order next time I come into the Federal Way store at probably minimum not. wage. Uh -huh. Probably not. And speak English uh, and yeah. is comfortable talking with you. Exactly. So I think you'll see improvement in quality and service as a consequence of this slowdown. The agreement I have with uh, organizations I volunteer with and my partners is when the uh, new aquarium where I volunteer. We forgot to even talk about the new aquarium, and is there a time frame on when that's going to be completed? Summer of 2024, on November 12th, which is a week from Saturday, we will pour the big tank at oh, the aquarium. fantastic. Oh, wow. There's 3.4 million pounds of rebar wow. outlining the tank, and we will pour all day to fill the tank so you can see that it actually is a tank and not a big collection of rebar. And we hope to broadcast that on one of the websites so people can see that going on. But that'll open in the summer of 2024. A 335,000 gallon tank, 200 different species in the tank, visible from outside the aquarium. You can walk underneath the tank and look up through a 32 foot window into the tank. You don't have to go inside. Lots of native art and native stories in the place and a huge conservation effort. But perhaps most importantly, this will be the greenest aquarium in the world. And the animals that are in the tank, we will raise their babies and release them into the Puget Sound so it becomes a regenerative aquarium That's fantastic. rather than a consumptive one. It'll be a big success. And we don't even know, we didn't talk about, how did you get involved with the aquarium in the first place? So my younger daughter has known from the time she's six years old that she's going to work with sea otters. And 20 years ago, we took her to the aquarium Halloween party. And standing in the touch tank room, she grabbed my elbow and pointed across the room. There he is. The world's foremost sea otter, C.J. Casson, worked at the Seattle Aquarium. First guy to breed sea otters in captivity, was the expert on the Exxon Valdez recovery of sea otters in Alaska. And he is a Seattle guy. He was at the aquarium for 30 years until his retirement two years ago. And so she fell in love with the aquarium. And to support her, I began volunteering there. Well, yeah, you get an A-plus in dad too, huh? I read a figure that you guys have raised. I don't know if it's for the entire project down there going on the waterfront, but you've raised over a billion. So the total... Construction cost of the seawall, the roadway, the park, and the utilities was $3.24 billion, except for $100 million that Friends of Waterfront Seattle is raising. All the rest was contributed by the state, the city, the county, and the port. Friends of Waterfront Seattle has a commitment to raise $190 million, and they're at $100 million raised. And the aquarium has a budget of $160 million, and there's $105 million raised. And that's all, it's 
95% local philanthropy. So it's the community supporting the community. That's yeah. great. That's, That's got to make you, yeah, that, you got to love that. Mark's name is on there. He's given us a seven-figure gift. You're world famous. <laughs> and, I know, and I know you. Once you knew me. Nice. Well, that's fantastic. Now, listen, if, if we're taking requests, if there's anything over the next few years, you know, that can top the, uh, the submarine billboards down on the water hoax, you know, some of us would love the next adventure. We're always working on things, but we won't tell you in advance right. so you can discover No, I would love to be surprised. Any golden nuggets before we sign off here? I think I'm talked out. What do you think, Mark? Do I think we're we good. Cover I think we've covered, covered everything. I would just say for everybody that's listening is go to the Salmon House, go to Acres of Clams, go up to the Muckle T.O. store, and then yeah. all the other little fish bars along the way and support the organization. Absolutely. What did I say? Best business chips on the planet. That's what we like to hear, Robbie. Absolutely. We'll quote you in our advertising. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Bob, for being a part of this. Thanks for having me. Very appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Bob. When we get together, we can be a pair of fun guys. We can be. But my whole motto is, who said wealth management couldn't be fun? You know, we don't want to do that whole stick in the mud kind of a So you're the mushroom guys if you're the fun guys? (laughs) Yeah, of course. David David likes to call us Oscar and Felix. We haven't figured out which one's which yet. Yeah, yeah, so. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.